Open your Bibles, please, to the 63rd Psalm. Psalm 63 that we looked at earlier in our first assembly. Let's look there again, briefly. In the first assembly this morning, I gave you examples. I showed you Jacob at Bethel when he got a vision of God and the effect it had on him and his life. Moses in Exodus 33 and 34 when he saw the backsides of God's glory and he was empowered to continue leading that rebellious and stiff-necked group of people toward Canaan. We saw Job in the 42nd chapter repent in dust and ashes when by hearing sufficiently from the Lord through his ears, he said, Now mine eye seeth thee, and he repented. We saw Isaiah grieving over his sinful speech and the sinful speech of the nation and then committing to be the one that God could send by the vision of God's glory he had. We saw Ezekiel prepared for his ministry by the vision he had in Ezekiel chapter 1. We saw Peter. Peter falling at the knees of the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then immediately leaving his boats, his nets, and all the fish he had just taken to go follow Jesus Christ and be fisher of men by a vision of the glory of God through Jesus Christ. We saw Saul of Tarsus change drastically and very quickly on the road to Damascus. And we briefly considered the Apostle John as he saw glorified Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. When we want to see a vision of God, what are we looking for? We want to see His holiness. We want to see His holiness. When Psalm 27 verse 4 says to behold the beauty of the Lord, the Bible tells us what His beauty is. We are to worship Him in the beauty of holiness. Because it is absolute purity, spotlessness, and freedom from sin that makes God beautiful. The beauty of holiness. Many churches make their facilities beautiful, so they think that they're worshiping closely to God in the holiness of beauty. But we could come into any place. We could be in a barn and worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness by seeing His absolute perfection from away from sin. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is said to be holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. That descriptive word undefiled and the phrase separate from sinners is part of His holiness. So when we go into the Word of God and we find the word holy, when we find four creatures ascribing thrice holiness to the Lord in Revelation chapter 4, we pause. And we want to see the image that would make all humans, all men like us, no matter if they were as zealous and as righteous as Saul of Tarsus or Isaiah the prophet, cringe and cry out in grief for their sinfulness in the holy presence of God. We want to see His holiness. Brethren, I don't have time to elaborate on these. I have preached on holiness before. I hope you'll remember a blue fringe. I hope that you'll remember that men who offered incense that wasn't pleasing to the Lord had their censers melted down and formed into words that were to go across an altar, holiness, 
unto the Lord. To be reminded that you didn't play around with God's worship. We want to look for His glory. You know, what part of the Lord do you want to call His glory? Is it His infinity? Everything else is finite that we know, but God is infinite. Is it His invisibility? The invisible God, the Bible tells us. Is it His immortality? He can never die. Is it His independence? He needs no one, and He's always been everything that He is. I am that I am. He is not, I am what was created. I am, He is not what, I am what was begotten. I am what I am. Is it His immensity that He fills heaven and earth? Is it His intelligence that He's omniscient of all things? Is it His invincibility that He's omnipotent? Is it His immutability that He never changes? What do you glory in about the glory of God? Remember, David wanted to see His power and His glory in Psalm 63 in verse 2. Do you love His strength? The Bible says to seek the Lord and His strength. Terror is a part of the Lord. The Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And that is the 11th verse of 2 Corinthians 5, because verses 9 and 10 are saying, For we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a day of judgment coming. I gave you a 4 minute and 33 second video clip yesterday in the preparatory email that was just to remind you of that fact. That you will face God, the judge of all, and are you living in light of that day? Are you truly a Christian? Do you just play with conviction? Are you like the link said, using a paring knife to play around with your hand and to play around your eye, but you never really cut off or pluck out because you're still following your lust, because you're still worshiping self instead of the Lord? When something causes us fear in our lives, we take preparations against it and precautions against it and preparations to avoid it. The greatest thing you ought to fear is the judgment seat of Christ in your own strength and in your own accomplishments. What precautions are you taking and what preparation are you taking? If we had a vision of the terror of the Lord, it would change our approach to life. The Bible tells us when we're looking for a vision of God, we're to look at His works and to remember His works and to meditate and muse on His works. And those works are sometimes found in the Bible because they're His historical works that are described there. His works are sometimes in creation or in providence or in your life. Has God done great and marvelous things in your life ever? He has mine. And I love to go back and think about Him delivering me from things I didn't know how to deliver myself from as one of His works and changing my heart at various times in my life. Love. When we want to see a vision of God, we want to see His love. The Apostle Paul would say in that same 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, knowing the terror of the Lord in the 11th verse, by the time he gets to the 14th verse, he's saying, for the love of Christ constraineth me. And it's that balance that we always want to have. The love makes the terror manageable. The terror makes the love sober and holy and righteous. And we want both. But does do you look at the love of Christ? Do you think upon the love of Christ? Do you meditate upon the love of God for you? 
in which he adopted you as his own son, which I've tried to teach you from Romans chapter 8, that is a vision of God's glory that would change you. Do you look at his goodness as a means to repentance? His goodness is a witness that he exists. And when he showers you with goodness or fills your hearts with food and gladness, as the apostles described in Acts 14, that goodness should lead us to repentance. That is seeing the fish in our boat more than we've ever caught, more than we ever thought we would have, and blessing God for it and knowing that we are unworthy of it, of the blessing. Answered prayer. The Bible tells us, look at here in Psalm 63 and verse 5, about answered prayer. When I remember thee, because in verse 7, Thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Have you prayed for things at times where you called upon the Lord? Maybe it was something relatively simple like the sale of a house, which sometimes the world doesn't think is relatively simple, but the Lord comes and, and delivers you from that burdensome piece of real estate. Or you were sick or diagnosed with something, or you were troubled with a physical affliction, you prayed and the Lord took it away. Or you had trouble with your children, the Lord had mercy upon them. You sought conception and the Lord granted it. His, the answers to prayer, David would just burst out in Psalm 116 and say, in the first verse, I love the Lord, because He hath heard the voice of my supplication. I will call upon the Lord all the days of my life, because He hears my prayers. Where do you look? You look in the sanctuary. We're in Psalm 63 in verse 2. David said, to see thy power and thy glory. In the second verse, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. In the very way that I have seen you in the sanctuary of God. So we come into the house of the Lord. The few I got to talk with at break time today felt that the first assembly had been useful to their souls by coming into the house of the Lord. We jam-packed a lot into one hour and 45 minutes. We worked Psalm 27.4. We worked Psalm 63. We sang hymns of praise. We worked the examples that God has given us in His Word of great men who had great visions of God. And when we come in here and the, and the praying and the singing and the reading and the psalms and the Scripture and the preaching of the Gospel, all of that is supposed to bear on our minds through the hearing of the ear, so that we can say with Job, Now mine eye seeth thee again. Right, right. I've been out in the world hearing all kinds of other things and seeing all kinds of other things, and I'm thirsty because I'm in a land where there is no water. We come into the house of the Lord. And we go home refreshed because we find some water. The water being the instruction about the presence and glory and beauty of God, but we come into his sanctuary. What was Asaph's problem? Now I'm showing you that in, David thought that it was the sanctuary where he had seen the power and glory. That's Psalm 63. Psalm 73 is Asaph. As for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. 73 2. Where did he find the cure? Where did Asaph get the cure for being envious at the lives of the wicked around him? In the sanctuary. Verse 16. When I thought to know this, that is, 
the 14 verses he had just used to describe the pitiful condition of his heart, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Because it was in the sanctuary where the prophets of God, the priests of God, and the Levites would explain the word of God. And then, while you're out in the world where there is no water, and your soul is thirsty, wondering if there's any value in serving the Lord, like Asaph did, you see the wicked apparently thriving. And you wonder, I'm giving up the lust of my flesh that they're following. They're giving themselves over lasciviously and greedily to the lust of their flesh, and they're prospering. I'm denying myself those things, and I'm troubled. Is it worth it? I love the I love the plainness of the King James Bible. Amen. The Lord does not say that it's always a bed of roses. He gives us men like Asaph, who a great song leader. David didn't pick men to be his song leader unless he was a great man in his delighting in the Lord. But he his feet had slipped until he went into the sanctuary, then understood I their end. All of a sudden we get a picture of the glory and holiness of God again. And we understand God's giving them their heaven right now. He's giving us a little bit of affliction right now. And we have heaven coming. And the glory that shall be revealed is not worthy to be compared to whatever we have to endure or whatever we might enjoy in this world. We learn that in the house of God. So that's where we look. We go to the house of God. There's more verses than that. But we go to the Word of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We want a vision of God. How do we get one? I just explained very quickly what we look for. His holiness. His glory. His power. His strength. His terror. His works. His love. His goodness. His answers to prayer. We see those things and we see we're we're basically put into the same position as Peter was. What a blessing. You have blessings in your life. All you have to do is think a little bit. And you know, I love the song that we sing, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you to see what God hath done. But we get so wrapped up in our little problems. Our minds run to problems more than to blessings. We're negative creatures. We're complainers and whiners and murmurers by nature. Run to the blessings and count them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6, now these things were our examples. Speaking of our fathers in the wilderness, to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So we're told that the Old Testament and God's dealings with our fathers, verse 1 of this chapter, that were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, they went through the Red Sea with Moses. Those things are our examples that we shouldn't lust. We shouldn't be idolaters, verse 7. We shouldn't be fornicators, verse 8. We shouldn't tempt Christ, verse 9. We shouldn't murmur, verse 10. And all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And see, in each of these, in these cases, there was a severe judgment of God. So if we go back and we find God's judgment upon fornicators and idolaters and tempters and murmurers, then we see the glory of God and that He hates those things and we can form our lives away from them and we're transformed by hating those four things because we, we use the Scriptures. A funeral home. 
Some of you went to a funeral. And we are sorry for the grief of the family at their loss. But a funeral is the house of mourning. And every time there's an opportunity to go to the house of mourning, go to the house of mourning. Some of you went last Lord's Day to the funeral of Christina's grandfather. At least one of you went on Friday to the funeral of a co-worker at Costco who went south on northbound 85 and met a FedEx truck head-on and burned for six hours. And he worked next to two of our young men in this church. That's a good place to go. The house of mourning. Because that is the end of all flesh. That's where we're all going. And I'm sorry that it's not preached like it should be preached at a funeral. For those of you who saw that little video clip that I've referred to once, my daughter wrote me and said, that ought to be shown on a giant screen that hangs right over the coffin. I liked her suggestion, because that's the end of all flesh. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Where do you get a vision of God? You go in there and look at that lifeless clay that's returning to dust and realize, where is the Spirit? He's met His Maker. Oh, Lord God in heaven, have mercy upon my soul. Woe is me! I am undone if I were to be taken right now and to stand before the holy God of the universe. Forgive me my sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, and you better believe that. If you don't believe His promise, then that means you believe the devil because you value His Word more than you value the Word of the Lord. Value the promise that God gives you. You melancholy speculators thinking that God has forsaken you, and I love every single one of you, but don't you dare reject the forgiveness that's promised in the Bible because you're valuing the word of the devil in a fiery dart against your soul more than you're valuing the balm of Gilead and the blessing of God by giving you his promise that he would forgive you. But to look at that house of clay that's been vacated by a spirit that's been hauled into the presence of God by the angels of heaven that will give an account of his life, it should sober us. When you go outside and you look at the creation, I've asked a number of you at break time, the sun is glorious out there today. Right. When you look at the glorious, of, the glorious nature of that sun shining upon us, you need to ask yourself, is the being that spoke that little ball of fire into existence equal to or less than the glory of that sun that he created? Which is it? More, brother, thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. More. Abundantly more. That's nothing. That's just a little tiny token of the glory of God. So creation. When you were, if any of you read Job 38, 39, 40, 41, did he, did the Lord mention any of his creation? Does the Lord believe in going to the zoo? Does the Lord want you to go to the zoo and look at the peacock? And does He want you to hear these words? Adam, Eastland, I'll let you off, Green. 
Adam Eastland? Were you there when I gave the peacock its goodly feathers? The eagle, the horse, the ostrich, the storms. I'm getting ahead of myself. All of of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. All of His creatures. Brother Gerald at break time wanted to point out that in the song we sang, Holy, 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 it says, All thy works shall praise thee in earth and sky and sea. Does the Lord, in chapters of Job 38-41, through involve creatures of earth and sky and sea? He does indeed. So there's in creation to look and see God spoke that into existence and it reproduces after its own kind. There is no evolution. There is a Creator God and He's glorious. He can pull the nose out of an elephant and He can stretch the neck of a giraffe and He can strip the pants from a baboon and He's glorious in every one of them. And you look at it and you say, Lord! And if you think that I'm crass, or too low for the glory of God, you don't know Jehovah. Because in Job 38, 39, 40, and 41, that is exactly how he reasoned. The providence of God. Psalm 107 is all about the providence of God, whether you be travelers, in affliction, in prison, in famine, or on the sea. And it says in the last verse of Psalm 107, Whoso is wise and will observe these things... Even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. What did the loving kindness of the Lord mean to David in Psalm 63? It was one of the features and traits and characters of characteristics of God that he delighted in. Right. So if we read Psalm 107 and then we look into our lives, the lives of others that we've known about, of how God delivered them from different kinds of trouble, and all that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. And the goodness of God should lead you to repentance. Psalm 107 is a vision of the glory of God. And He's delivered some of you. Storms. Now I need to help all of you love storms. I may have started a little early with some of my children. Like when they were in diapers. But I love storms because... Help me out. I forgot right now, but was, were storms mentioned in Job 33 through Job 41? Did he mention storms at all? Lightning, thunder? Did, did he ever bring that up? Did he bring it up once? Maybe twice? Maybe three times? Maybe four times? Does the Lord love His bolts of lightning and crashes of thunder? Does Psalm 29 all about the voice of the Lord? What voice is He talking about? The still, calm voice that He spoke to Elijah? What is Psalm 29 about? The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. What is he referring to? Bolts of lightning and the claps of thunder surrounding them. We had a good lightning storm a few nights ago. I told the young people about it on Wednesday evening. I'm lying in bed. The, 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 the room's instantly brighter than we could ever get it with natural lighting. And I start counting out loud. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005. I'm getting so sad and depressed, 1,006, 1,007, 1,008, 1,009, 1,010, 1,000, boom. Oh, it's two miles away. And I'm saying, Lord, please, please could I have one front and center right over this house? 
so that I could hear the canvas rip in the air and that my grass will be green tomorrow morning with the nitrogen that you release by your power. He's not going to hurt you with a bolt of lightning. Listen, if the lightning ever hits you, you're not going to be scared by the thunder. He's going to take you home to glory. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord causeth the hinds to calve. Go read Psalm 29. The Lord delights in thunder. It's the glory of God. Is it a little sobering when it's front and center over your house? Yes, but I like that. I want to be sobered. I want to know that just a few more inches and He could have taken me out with that. And am I ready to meet Him? Because the whole purpose of seeing the glory of God is to be convicted about being ready to meet Him. It's His power. Storms are a wonderful place. Nahum 1.3 puts it this way, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind, that's a tornado, and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. That, that's where the Lord is. That He's whispering to us when we hear thunder. How do we look, brethren? We pray for it. Did Moses pray to see the glory of God? Did he say, was it, a, was it a complicated prayer? Or did he say, show me thy glory? Did the Lord say, I'll show you my glory? The next verse? Yes, we looked at that. So you pray for it, brethren. Will you pray for yourself? Will you pray for your perfection? Will you pray for your greatness? You can't be like Jacob and Moses and Isaiah and Job and Peter and John and Paul. You can't be like them without a vision of God. Will you pray for your greatness? Can I motivate you that way? Then pray for a vision of God. It'll make you great. It'll change you. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 changed me when I was 18 years old. You laughed out loud when you heard me mention that passage. Because you know, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord. I was 18 years old, and I saw also the Lord through the pen of Isaiah the prophet. Brethren, let's pray for a vision of God. But there's something else you've got to do. You've got to be still. And I'm going away to be still. Psalm 46 and verse 10 be still. What did Psalm 4-4 teach us as you're turning to Psalm 46? Did Psalm 4-4 teach us, stand in awe and sin not? Did it say, commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still? Selah? You've got to be still. Our lives stink in this nation. The blessings of electricity and all the things that electricity run in our homes... And all the activity that we can engage in well past evening when the sun has set and God has turned out the lights, we turn them on so that we can stay active and and have noise in our lives. I love our witty inventions, but I fear they're a curse to us at some times because we need to be still. We need to get rid of activity and noise and meditate and muse instead. And the Lord used to be able to shut the lights off and force us to do so. Don't get me on daylight savings time. I don't want to save daylight. Be still. Psalm 46 and verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. You need to pray for it. 
and you need to get some quiet time in your life. And it's got to be a priority. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, nor the strong man glory in his strength, nor the wise man in his wisdom, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knoweth and understandeth me. Get your priorities right. Don't glory in your job. Don't glory in your athletic accomplishments. Don't glory in your academic. Don't glory in your financial successes. Don't glory in your balance sheet. Don't glory in your investments. Glory in the fact that you know God. And if you put the priorities such in your life that you delight thyself also in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. And He's not talking about helping you have a new Cadillac. Because a man who delights himself, Brother Jeff, thank you, Brother Jeff loves to remind me this about all the time when I mention Psalm 37.4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, a man who's delighting in the Lord. The desires of his heart will change from a man who delights himself in the flesh. And the Lord will give him those desires. And the Lord will add riches to the man who puts the Lord first anyway, like he did to Solomon. I want wisdom because I'm a little child and I don't know how to go out and to come in. Well, I'm going to give you that wisdom. There's going to be no king before you or after you like you but I'm also going to give you a few things you didn't ask for. You put the Lord first in your priorities and He'll take care of the rest. Why look? Because the Bible tells you to look. When thou saidest unto me, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. That's Psalm 27 and verse 8. The Lord delights in those who seek, and you can see the effect it had in Job, Isaiah, and Peter. Now I have two verses for you. I want you to turn to Amos with me and we close. Hosea, Joel, Amos. It's Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos chapter 5. Why are you alive today? Because you take vitamins? Because you wear magnets? Because you go to your doctor every year whether you need it or not? Why are you alive today? I'm going to tell you and show you why you're alive today. Why am I alive today? Let's start at verse 4. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not to Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, And pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek the Lord, Jehovah, and ye shall live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. You are alive to seek the Lord, and you better seek the Lord before it's too late to seek the Lord. There is a time to seek the Lord, and then that opportunity is withdrawn. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Today is my point. Today, seek the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 2. Just keep turning to the right. It's right after Habakkuk. These are the minor prophets of God, and we should love them. They didn't get big books to write like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but they were mighty men of God, and they warned the nation, both the nations of Israel and the nation of Judah, some before their captivity in Babylon and some after the captivity 
Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 3. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. The Lord's anger will come on this nation. This is a wicked nation that has taken the name of God and trampled it in the mud of their wicked, lascivious, greedy pursuit of lasciviousness and lust. And so the Lord tells us, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth. He's speaking to His people, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. Brethren, conform yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Does anyone here have a good enough memory to remember the angel and his inkhorn? Do you remember the angel in Ezekiel chapter 9 after the abominations of chapter 8, which include the sunrise services that are being announced in our city at the very hour? In Ezekiel chapter 9, the angel with the inkhorn went through Israel and marked the foreheads of all those that sought the Lord and that sighed for the abominations done among the people of God. And so when the angel came through with their sickles to cut down and destroy that nation, they looked and they saw, and every man that had a mark on his forehead from the inkhorn of the angel of the Lord was delivered from the judgment. Judgment's coming on this nation. We don't know when. The reason it hasn't come earlier is because God is merciful and He's long-suffering. And He's great in those things. And He has preserved this nation for the sake of the righteous in it. But there's fewer and fewer of them. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. I have preached to you about a vision of God, so that you might see the glory of God and conform yourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be, ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word.